Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And today we're talking about bad kids, but not just bad kids, but this idea of the evil child or the psychopathic child, to use the French, the enfant terrible, right? Which comes from the title of the Jean Cocteau novel, Les Enfants Terribles, from 1929. Yes. It's a trope that we see again and again in fiction. Uh, just to name a few, there's Damien from The Omen, bad kid. Not really his fault. He's the Antichrist, right? He, right. can't be helped. They're the kids from the Village of the Damned. I seem to remember they were aliens or something. Mm-hmm. Spoilers all around here. Sorry. There's the Bad Seed. Personal favorite. Yeah, yeah, tell us a little about this one. Okay, so this is, I guess it maybe did start as a stage play, but I have seen the movie, and it is set up like a stage play. Mm-hmm. And it's very kitschy, and it centers around this little girl. I don't know, maybe she's seven years old. I don't remember the details. I can't remember her name, but she's terrifying because... Here is this little blonde, perky girl with long braids. You know, she's got the checked dress on. and Kind of like the dream child. The dream child. As far as aesthetics are concerned. Yeah, I mean, she talks to adults and she smiles and she's so sweet. But then you began to see that this child is like cold and calculating. Mm -hmm. And she wants some other kid's pin like the pen, lapel pen, mm-hmm. and she murders for it. It is very convincing, even though it's, you know, of the time, it's very kitschy. But what I think is fascinating about that movie is that it definitely captures an era in which society was starting to look more inward and really looking at the dark side of human nature. You've got the Betty Page going on. You begin to see more images of what people are thinking about that's not so 1950s. Betty and Page is talking about the pinup. Model. Yeah, you know, yeah. the shades of sadomasochism coming out, or at least people beginning to say, like, oh, this is an interesting part of our experience or what we're thinking. Anyway, there's this sort of delving into the human mind, into the psyche. And all of a sudden, people start to consider children as not necessarily these innocent butterflies of our human nature, but possibly, you know, containing the seeds of, well, in this case, the bad seed of psychopathy. Yeah, and this idea, too, that the child is the seed of a bad person to come, that all right. the things that are immoral or corrupt in the uh, eventual adult are present in the child. Other examples from fiction that are kind of fun, there's The Good Son. I believe that was Macaulay Culkin. Yes, you know? Psychopath. There's The Ring, where the character in The Ring video is a ghost of a rather troubled child. There's Peter Wiggin in Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, who likes to torture animals to death and physically and mentally torment his siblings. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend Ender's Game, by the way, if you haven't read that. Ray Bra- Bradbury had a couple of short stories. Small Assassin personifies this concept I've read. If we look to Harry Potter, there's good old Tom Riddle and pretty much most of the Slytherin gang, I guess. Yeah, had yeah. Varying shades of bad seededness. In the Dune universe, there's Alia. In Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, there's Mordred, at least early on when he seen him as a kid. And then on Family Guy, there's Stewie Griffin. Kind of a comedic take on the idea of the nefarious, uber-intelligent and uber-manipulative youngster. You forgot the Full House twins. Oh, yes. Those girls that grew up to be actresses. Yeah, the Olsons, right? Right, yeah. right. Or actually, they just billionaires is what they grew up to be. We want to look into this idea, this idea of nature versus nurture, about whether or not this is something that's hardwired in individuals. And this came to our attention recently because we read an article from the New York Times called Can You Call a Nine-Year-Old a Psychopath? Yeah, by Jennifer Kahn. Nice, long, 
in-depth article. Excellent reading. We'll include a link to it in the blog post that accompanies this podcast. And it raised a lot of questions. Like I saw spin-off blog posts, spin-off mm-hmm. stories about this in other venues because it really examines the idea. Is it possible that a child that has various emotional or behavioral problems is in fact not just an eventual psychopath, but they already have the psychopathic qualities. Right. And we'll talk about that a little bit more and why that's actually problematic to even ask the question. Right. But let's discuss psychopathy and the fact that on some level we are all psychopaths, right? Not all the time, because that would actually make us true psychopaths. Mm -hmm. But all of us are guilty of lying at one time or another or manipulating someone or feeling a lack of empathy in a situation. But these are usually fleeting moments for most of us. It's not a constant state. Well, the more you look at psychopathy, it it kind of feels like like we're on a board game, like society is this board game. And Mm -hmm. there are rules. There are hard and fast rules about what you can do. And then there's this layer of honor code on top of it. It is very much in tune with what we're ethically capable of doing and willing to do. Mm -hmm. And so to a certain extent psychopathic or sociopathic individuals are just sort of free of this top level of honor system rules. Right, right. Like they're free of the constraints in a way. Mm-hmm. In, a, in, a, in a certain way, they are more free in society to exploit the lower level of rules and ignore the higher honor system level of rules. Well, that's what happens, right? If you don't react to shame, mm-hmm. if you're not interested in how someone perceives you, if you don't have any empathy. Yeah. No impulse control? No impulse control, although you can still be calculating and have a measure of impulse control if, if mm-hmm. the reward is there. And you just don't care about getting caught. Yeah. Right? That's what you're saying. That's the sort of alternate game here. Like to put this in like Twinkie terms, you would have no shame about eating six Twinkies. Twinkie terms. Yeah, there would be no impulse control to kick in and say, I shouldn't eat six Twinkies. Mm -hmm. You would lie to get that fifth and sixth Twinkie. You would steal the fifth and sixth Twinkie from a friend, a coworker, a supposed loved one. Mm -hmm. And then if confronted about it, you'd be like, yeah, I ate six Twinkies. What of it? Wow. So all we need really is a twinkometer yeah. to see where we fall on this spectrum. You would charm somebody for the Twinkie, you would kill for a Twinkie. Because you're, again, removed from that top layer of rules concerning Twinkie acquisition. All right. Okay. I think this this has legs that we need to explore later. But let's talk a little bit more about the cost of psychopathy. A recent estimate by the neuroscientist Kent Keel placed the national cost of psychopathy at $460 billion a year. That's about 10 times the cost of depression. And in part, that is because psychopaths tend to be arrested repeatedly. Again, lack of shame, lack of concern for getting caught. Mm -hmm. These tend to be elements that land people into jail, right? Yeah, because it comes down to there are things I want in life. I don't feel held back from doing what I need to do to get them. And then confronted by it, yeah, I... I did this. I did this horrible thing. Uh, also, it's worth pointing out, psychopaths are estimated to make up 1% of the population. Mm-hmm. The that, general population. The general population. Going to a prison, however, 15 to 25% of the offenders. And that's a disproportionate number of the brutal crimes and violent offenses and murders. Yeah. And let's unpack the definition of this. Um, broadly speaking, there are people who use manipulation, violence, and intimidation to control others and mm-hmm. satisfy selfish needs. Um, they can be intelligent and highly charismatic, narcissistic, but they display a chronic inability to feel guilt, as we said, remorse or anxiety. And this is important, the anxiety We'll talk about that, about their actions. And as a result, they tend to lie much of the time and sometimes for no reason at all. Yeah. I mean, it's not like all psychopaths are going to be murderers. Many of them are going to lead train wreck, self-absorbed lives. Or they may be in the financial world. Exactly. Yeah, they may be in a a world where all of the things that are 
quote-unquote wrong with them line up perfectly with mm-hmm. the values of that given institution. Right. Well, and there are some people who say that Bernie Madoff, for example, is a good example of someone who is a psychopath just kind of cruising around in the financial world, certainly mm-hmm. bilking people out of their money, not feeling any shame. And it made me think about this documentary called The Corporation, and it talks about, well, if you were to take a corporation and, and run it through as a person, through mm-hmm. a battery and of And they are personal- people, right, according to them. T- according to the law. Yeah. If you're to run them through a battery personality test, a corporation would come out as a just steel-cold psychopath. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So it is interesting to know that there are some psychopathic personalities that do gravitate toward the financial world. That is not to say that people in the financial world, which is vast, widespread, that everybody in it is a psychopath. That's far from what we're saying. We're just saying that, eh, you know, it does line up a bit. Yeah, as a quick aside, you know, we should really come back and do an episode on personhood at some point. Yep. There are a number of different areas to explore there. So let us know if you're interested in that. Let's look at the brain. Let's look at the brain and psychopathy. What exactly do we think is going on in the mind that causes this rule-breaking system of behavior to surface? Well, if we look at MRI scans uh, on the brain and brains of adult psychopaths, we can see significant anatomical differences in certain areas. For instance, there's a smaller subgenual cortex and a 5 to 10% reduction in brain density in portions of the paralimbic system. These are regions of the brain associated with empathy mm-hmm. and social values. So, again, very much that top level of honor system rules. Yeah, and really those are the parts that are active in moral decision-making. Ah. According to James Blair, a cognitive neuroscientist at the National Institute of Mental Health, two of these areas, the orbitofrontal cortex and the caudate, are critical for reinforcing positive outcomes and discouraging negative ones. In callous, unemotional children, and we'll talk about this, that's the term for what you would maybe say pre-psychopathic children, Blair says that connection may be defective with negative feedback not registering the way that it would in a normal brain. And that's an interesting way to look at this. Yeah. You know, the operating system is a bit off. Researchers have also linked cold-blooded behaviors to low levels of cortisol and below normal functionings of the amygdala. Now, we've talked about the amygdala before. Mm-hmm. This is the portion of the brain that processes fear and other aversive social emotions, such as shame. We discussed there's a, a lack of shame. Right. Six, six Twinkies, no shame. Right, and we know that cortisol is our hormone that is related to stress, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're fearful of something, if you have anxiety, of course your cortisol levels would shoot up. And that is what I think is so interesting about this is that these are below level. These kids and adults who, well, kids that may be, I should say, psychopaths or pre-psychopaths and adults that have the profile, they actually have sort of insensitivity to this anxiety. There was one study that compared the criminal records of 23-year-olds with their sensitivity to unpleasant stimuli at age three. In that study, the three-year-olds were played a simple tone and then exposed to a brief blast of unpleasant white noise. And though all the children developed the ability to anticipate this going on, Mm -hmm. uh, most of the toddlers who went on to become criminals as adults didn't show the same signs of aversion. And we're talking about tensing or sweating when the advanced tone was played. So again, here's this idea that it's physiological, that it is something in the brain that's just not processing fear. And in fact, we know too that in psychopaths that it's harder for them to recognize fear in others as well. So there also is this idea that psychopathy might be a learning disability, which, again, is a different way to to come at this subject. And I think it's really interesting to come at it this way because the consensus really is is that there's no treatment for 
psychopathy, right? It's a dead-end road. There's nothing that someone can do, behavioral or pharmaceutical. And that's really depressing, right? Mm -hmm. But Joseph Newman believes that it is a type of learning disability or informational processing deficit that makes individuals oblivious to the implications of their actions, but just when they're focused on tasks that promise instant reward. So what we're saying here is that when there isn't that instant reward, they can sometimes engage in empathy, or have a little bit more of an understanding of the situation. But if there is that instant reward, all bets are off. In a study he repeated in different prison populations, Newman observed how quickly psychopathic and non-psychopathic individuals responded to a series of mislabeled images. So he'd have a drawing of a pig with the word dog on it, superimposed on it, and then researchers would flash each image, and then they would time how long it took for subjects to name what they saw. So the really interesting thing here is that non-psychopathic subjects subconsciously stumbled on the mislabeled images, and they took longer to name the images, but the psychopathic subjects barely noticed. The discrepancy wasn't important to them, and they consistently answered more quickly. So what's really cool about this, cool, interesting, about the study is that it doesn't have anything to do with fear or anxiety, and this is what people have been focusing on in the past. So the idea is that it supports this notion that a psychological deficit could be at play, And this is what Newman says. He says, people think psychopaths are just callous and without fear, but there is definitely something more going on. When emotions are their primary focus, we see that psychopathic individuals show a normal emotional response. But when they're focused on something else, they become insensitive to emotions entirely. So a lot of it is just what happens to be their focus. Hmm. So, again, there's this idea that you could get in, you could intervene, you could change the hardwiring. Especially if you get in there early enough. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to really get into the idea of callous and unemotional children and the idea that we could potentially find psychopaths while they're children and actually do something about it while their minds are still forming. All right, we're back. One thing that my mind kept coming back to as we were looking at this podcast was the show Mad Men, which I know you've seen a few episodes of, Mm -hmm. and I have remained pretty current on it. Great television show, very deep, very into its characters. But the producer, Michael Weiner, has said in a few different interviews that his approach to the children mm-hmm. on the show, the child characters on the show, is to approach them as creatures capable of the f- full range of human emotion. They're children, yes, but and even if they're treated as this kind of second-class creature, this unfinished person, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're still, there are things in life they want, there are things in life they're afraid of, that they're anxious about, that they're scared of, that they're trying to figure out. And so they're processing this adult world around them. They're trying to understand it, but they don't necessarily have all the tools, um, mm-hmm. all the emotional tools to deal with it that adults have. So I think it's important to really go into any examination of how children are thinking with that in mind, that there is a lot going on and, right. and a lot more going on than just the surface level of childhood simplicity. It's easy to look back on our childhoods and, and just see it in, in those simple terms. Well, and a lot of child psychologists will say, too, that the reason why it's so important to have a strong foundation for a child is that by age five, a mm-hmm. lot of the way that they perceive the world and understand the world is already established really strongly. And it makes sense because just as you said, like, you know, all that stimuli is still going to bombard them. They're still going to have all the same abilities that the adults do in terms of, okay, I, I perceive this, I see this, but not a context and not the tools for it. Right. So that is really why there is this level of flexibility to change your destiny, right, mm-hmm. uh, before this age five, and why it is so important that we 
create these positive blueprints. And that's why repetition is so important at that age, too. I see that in my own daughter. She's constantly playing out all these different scenarios because she's trying to get a hold on what reality is. So what happens when you have a kid, and the idea here is that callous, unemotional children, again, this is the term for what you could say is pre-psychopath, that you can actually sort of identify them as young as five years old. Right. And one of the problems with any of this identification is, of course, that, again, children are, are capable of all these human emotions. They are very complex individuals. It is very easy to diagnose some of their actions as psychotic uh, mm-hmm. or psychopathic because they are going to have issues with anger and issues mm-hmm. with testing their boundaries. And a lot of this just falls under the normal parameters of what it is to be a child. So you get into questions where, like, all right, is this child truly a psychopath? I mean, are, right. they, are these actual callous, unemotional traits in this child, or are they simply lashing out in an acceptable fashion? For instance, when you act out mm-hmm. as a child and you're getting a rise out of people, say you're angering your mom or your dad, you're exercising a certain amount of control in a universe that you may not feel that in control of. Again, it's repetition, too. Yeah. What if I do this over and over again? What's going to happen? It's testing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And you're right. That's like Some of this is such a gray area because kids are naturally narcissists and <laughs> impulsive, so you can't look at a kid and say, oh, that's a psychopath right there. Yeah, but I mean, up to a certain age, children are not really capable of empathy. They mm-hmm. would fail that Blade Runner Android test right off the <laughs> right, bat. Right, right. New Blade Runner coming out, by the way. Really? Mm-hmm. I just read that the other day, uh, Ridley Scott was thinking about it. Anyway. Right, well, well, let's see how Prometheus does first. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Here's the deal. There is no standard test for psychopathy in children, which probably isn't a surprise because this isn't really all that well studied. And hasn't been studied long enough as well because with any of these topics, you need to be able to look at a child's development over time or an individual's development over time to right. actually accurately evaluate what's happening. But the psychologists do think it is a distinct neurological condition. The psychologist Dan Washbush, he's is the person in the article, actually, that's the main focus here in terms of treatment. He uses a combination of psychological exams and teacher and family rating scales, including the inventory of callous, unemotional traits, the child psychopathy scale, and a modified version of the antisocial process screening device. And these are all tools that are designed to measure the cold predatory conduct most closely associated with adult psychopathy. That is from the article that we talked about. And a lot of this is measuring some of these things we discussed earlier. For Mm -hmm. instance, to what extent are they manipulating people? And again, you look at children, manipulation is part of it. It's testing testing boundaries. And in some cases, take children who have spent any time in institutionalized care in an orphanage. Mm -hmm. They're in a situation where you're having to employ survival tactics in this environment Mm -hmm. because you're dealing with, in many cases, with a certain amount of stimuli deprivation, be that emotional deprivation or sensory deprivation. So one may act out either in a manipulative fashion, so in a charming fashion, an Mm -hmm. overly charming fashion, to get some sort of an adult attention, or may act out in an adverse uh, way because negative attention is still preferred to no attention. It's endlessly complex when you start looking at the behaviors of children and the formation of the, the childhood mind. You're absolutely right, because as you said, if you're in a situation in your child and you don't, let's say, an orphanage, and mm-hmm. you don't ever have a deep connection with an adult you, that you can trust, that you feel like you can trust, mm-hmm. then that's sowing the seeds of narcissism right there. We already know that. We know that if kids don't make that connection, they start to turn inward. Mm-hmm. And that's really what happens with budding narcissists. That's different from a psychopath, right? So again, it muddies the waters. How do you really determine whether or not a child is pre-psychopathic? Let's give a couple of examples of what we're talking about. And these are both from that article 
And the first one is talking about this woman, Anne, and her husband and their child, Michael. And he is nine years old now. But at age five, she began to see a very like cold, calculating part of his personality emerge. And this is a good example. She says that she recalled one argument over a homework assignment when her son, Michael, shrieked and wept as she tried to reason with him. Quote, I said, Michael, remember the brainstorming we did yesterday? All you have to do is take your thoughts from that and turn them into sentences and you're done. He's still screaming bloody murder. So I say, Michael, I thought we brainstormed this so we could avoid all this drama today. He stopped dead in the middle of screaming, turned to me and said in this flat adult voice, well, you didn't think that through very clearly then, did you? Okay, that's creepy, right? Well, I mean, but how many times has your child said something creepy? I mean, well, inadvertently, (laughs) but she's never turned to me and said, Mother, did you really think I'd eat the cream corn? Did you really think that through? I mean, you know, there's, there's, and I think what she's saying is that here's this child screaming completely out of control, right? This is that impulse control thing, but then snaps to this other personality and is really attacking her parenting skills. Yeah. So there's <laughs> like this level of manipulation that's going on in a very young child that is a little bit odd. Yes. Now, and it's also important to stress here that this is not like, oh, the kids started acting up one day and the next thing it's this article in uh, the New York Times. Exactly. They had, they had seen a number of therapists. They'd gone to a number of different sources. They read book after book on the topic. So, And the jury is still out. They're not saying right. that this kid is, you know, they're saying he's callous and emotional. But there's this idea, because his father, and we'll talk about this heredity in this, that his father had some antisocial leanings as a child, too. So there's this hope that he can sort of change his course with some intervention. The second example is a nine-year-old boy named Jeffrey Bailey who pushed a toddler into the deep end of a motel swimming pool in Florida. As the boy struggled and sank to the bottom, Bailey pulled up a chair to watch. Questioned by the police afterward, Bailey explained that he was just curious to see someone drown. And when he was taken into custody, he seemed untroubled by the prospect of jail, but was pleased to be the center of attention. Again, we're not trying to scare anybody, but we're just saying like... It's it's really hard to crack jokes uh, in an episode like this. No, yeah. You really want to say something funny, but what can you say about that? Yeah, this just, I mean, you know, that that's unsettling, that's chilling. But those are the markers of what you would say a kid who was really sort of off the charts in terms of callous, unemotional behavior. Here's the deal, though. Normally, when you have someone acting like that, they are going to respond to shame, right? The parent can say, don't do that. Don't push your brother in the pool. That makes him feel awful. And the empathy kicks in, right? But we don't have that at play. Again, those rules of the game don't apply. And another thing that complicates this is, again, the hereditary aspect of it. If one parent has these genes, it's about an 80% likelihood that they will pass these on. And again, that's why they were looking at this case study sort of in the article of um, the father who, again, very antisocial as a child, but turned a new leaf, I guess, when he was probably about a teenager, if I remember correctly. And again, it's controversial to even say, to point to a child and say, you know what? You could be a psychopath. Why? Because that's just certainly is a societal death sentence, right? I mean, how can you navigate the world yeah. if you're labeled as such? Yeah, I mean, we have to, the terminology is just so weighted down, especially currently, because on one level, psychopath, it's a scary terminology. I mean, this is horror movie stuff, psychopath. Right. No, no child should have to go through life with that kind of a, a word attached to them. Like you say, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, mm-hmm. you, you enter this scenario thinking, oh, well, my child has something deep wrong with them, and there's no fixing it. 
to what extent are you going to try? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to end up pulling away from that child. And some of these studies have shown, I mean, that's where they really want to focus on. Yeah. Uh, that's where you can actually work on treatment, especially in the early ages, is to try and build that relationship between parent and child, not pull back and just give up. Yeah, you're right. There's an or early study. Give that- up may be a strong choice of words, but still, the idea is you want to pull closer. Yes. Uh, not pull apart. And there's some results from early studies that say that when kids who very least have behavioral problems most are callous, unemotional children, if they do get the caring, loving, really strong bond from a parent as much as they possibly can, mm-hmm. that there is some hope there and some results that show that the kids kind of change a little bit. Again, this is, this is problematic in a sense because parents of those children who are sort of getting pummeled by them emotionally and sometimes physically, it's really hard to be like, hey, come over here and cuddle when you don't know how that kid is going to react to you. And in fact, I remember that the mother in this and this article who said, you know, every time I go to talk to my child, I have to gird my loins because I know that on some level I'm about to be attacked. Mm. So definitely there's a lot of intervention that needs to happen. It's not something that parents could just go alone on. They, They definitely need help. There's a summer treatment program that psychologist Dan Washbosch runs, and this is his attempt to try to actually study this in earnest. I think he had about 12 kids last summer, and he's doubling it this summer. But the idea is that you can really look at the behavior of callous and unemotional children and begin to pinpoint ways to effectively intervene. Here's this attempt, though, to really study it. Because, again, this is something that there's not a lot of money to say, hey, let's study kids who may be psychopathic. Yeah, especially if the stigma is that it's not treatable. Exactly. Here's the crux of it. Here's the question. Can you teach empathy? Some people say that you can, but there is a famous study of an inmate therapy group that halved the recidivism rate in violent prisoners. Recidivism meaning that Mm -hmm. they're returned to prison. Uh, But it increased the rate of successful crimes in psychopaths because it improved their ability to mimic regret and self-reflection. So on one level, it's making them easier to be around and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and more a part of our world, less of an obstruction. Well, less of an obvious obstruction, but maybe more of a subversive obstruction. Yeah. In some cases. Yeah. And they have found that as these children have matured, Mm -hmm. they do develop the ability to simulate interest in other people's feelings. And that's what they call cognitive empathy. They can say what other people feel. They just don't care or really feel about it. But most researchers who study callous and emotional children hope to teach a kind of intellectual morality that's sort of hinged on this idea of cognitive empathy. So, you know, even if they do have a decreased ability to process emotion, the end goal here is to avoid violence, right? The outcome that is usually present with a psychopath, if a child does go in that path. So again, the thought is that if treatment is begun early enough, you could rewire the brain to develop greater empathy. It's also worth noting that we've mentioned psychopaths in prison, psychopaths that live lives that are rather disorganized or self-centered. But then there are also psychopaths or people that are diagnosed as psychopaths who do go on to live very successful and meaningful lives, one of which I encountered last year at the World Science Festival in New York. There's a neurobiologist by the name of James Fallon, and he gave an excellent talk at the Moth event mm-hmm. last year. He was discussing his own investigation, a genetic analysis of known psychopaths, and he ended up discovering all these markers in, mm-hmm. in, his, in his own personal genetic history and really had to confront the fact that, well, yeah, actually I do line up very well with most of these markers for uh, psychopathic behavior. And he's done yeah. a lot of great work, but even he himself points out, I'm a great guy to run into at a party, but 
maybe the, the closer you are to me in life, the more problematic the relationship is. Right. So you don't have to be a psychopath to actually... What I'm saying is that some, on some level, we're all sort of sociopaths or psychopaths, right? There, right. there are levels that we can be close to other human beings. And I feel like sociopath is a term that everyone's a little more comfortable with throwing around mm-hmm. in everyday conversation at someone who displays the slightest bit of selfishness. I yeah. feel like I've done that before myself where I'll encounter somebody and they're guilty of at least one incidence of selfishness or some sort of callous behavior. And I'll be like, oh, well, that person's a, clearly a sociopath. Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned the World Science Festival of Gaia because it is more like a spectrum disorder. This is not something, yeah. as you say, that you're just labeled and it's all of a sudden It's not like, oh, you're... he has the mark of Cain. He is going to go on to... Uh, Exactly, exactly. Pediatric psychopharmacologist Dr. Alan Ravitt says that we should be really slow to diagnose sociopathy because sometimes it's just a stand-in for our frustration at not being able to treat somebody, which I thought was interesting, right? Because this happens with parents a lot when they're having problems with their kids. It's like you just want to say, what is it so I can treat it or go on? Yeah, know the boundaries of it. And I think just in medicine in general, this is what we want to do. Say, label it so we can try to figure it out. But he's saying you should be really slow in trying to diagnose us. And he's also saying that we're just beginning to appreciate the genetic and neurophysiological aspects of the problem. And until we do more investigation, we're not really going to figure out what lever to pull. So I thought that was a really interesting perspective on it. you have any more psychopathic thoughts? Um, no, I thought I would close out with just a quick quote I really love in the way it relates to how we grow into the people, into the adults that we eventually become. And it's from playwright Peter Brooks' uh, adaptation of the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. It goes like this. Birth is obscure, and men are like rivers whose origins are often unknown. There you go. Well, let's crack open the mailbag. And speaking of the World Science Festival, by the time this episode airs, you will have returned from Mm -hmm. this year's World Science Festival. It's true. Yeah, so that'll be exciting. Got exoplanets on the menu, uh, some Internet-related stuff. All sorts of good stuff. All right. Well, here is a little listener mail from James. James wrote in in response to our summer reading podcast, and he wanted to share his enthusiasm for a book titled Two Planets by Kurt Losfitz. Getting a copy of this, you'll probably have to go through like some used copies from Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, who knows? It's the kind of thing that might come out on Kindle any day if it's not already. But this was a German science fiction book from 1897. Oh, cool. And it inspired Werner von Braun to get into rocketry. And uh, and also apparently it was a book that Walt Disney was rather keen on as well. Of course, an acquaintance of uh, Werner von Braun, as we've discussed. It sounds really cool. Like it's you know early dreams of space travel, mm-hmm. early dreams of futuristic technology. And uh, according to James, the story starts out with scientists traveling to the North Pole and discovering a Martian colony there. So all right, pretty cool. If you have anything you would like to share, if you would like to discuss psychopathy in adults or children, or if you have any thoughts in general about the mysteries of child and and the science of childhood <laughs> development, early childhood development especially, let us know. You can reach us on our Facebook account where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and on Twitter our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can send us an email to blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.